Uh, unlike all the other figures, historical figures we have discussed up till now, who either intended from early in life to accomplish something significant or who at some point in life realized that they were uh, great people in the, in the positive or negative sense, accomplishing some historic role, Mendel Bayliss always assumed that he was just an average Joe and never intended to be a celebrity or to enter into the history books in any way. He was a simple man. That's how he would have preferred to live his life, but destiny was not uh, in favor of that. Rather, he was meant to play an important role in a passive way, primarily, but also in something of an active way. So when I say that he's a hero of the Jewish people, it's not just because an accident... uh, foisted upon him responsibilities, but rather he really came through in the clutch. He behaved in the right way all throughout the period of his fame and in his later years. So he is deserving of the role, of the title of hero of the Jewish people. Okay. We begin with March 12th, 1911. In the city of Kiev, in Tsarist Russia, the reign of Nicholas II, a young boy, Andrei Yushinsky, disappears. Now, Andrei Yushinsky is of no great consequence. He's a 12-year-old boy. <coughs> disappears. His parents don't really make much of a fuss over his disappearance. But, 12 days later, on March 20th, his body is found in a cave. And he's dead. His body is... Uh, partially unclothed and his possessions are strewn all over the cave which is how they knew immediately who it was despite some disfiguration of his face and he has puncture wounds all over the upper body and head eventually they counted a total of 47 puncture wounds on his body he lost a lot of blood which will play an important role in the kinds of accusations that will be leveled against those who may have killed him. So, the police get involved. They're looking for a perpetrator. But there aren't many obvious clues just yet. On March 27th, the funeral is held. And at the funeral, there are leaflets being thrown around by members of the Black Hundreds organization. Now, the Black Hundreds are... (laughs) a chauvinistic, xenophobic, anti-Semitic, pro-Russian monarchy group. They believe in the autocratic rule... Huh? The boy was not Jewish. The boy was not Jewish. This group, the Black Hundreds, and their subgroup, the Double-Headed Eagle, believed in the autocratic rule of the Romanov dynasty. And they are anti-Jewish... And they're also anti-socialist, anti-revolutionary. They believe in the, the ancient regime of the Romanov dynasty. And these, this group is passing out leaflets saying this was a ritual murder. That the Jews, or a Jew, killed Andre for the purpose of extracting his blood for use in Jewish ritual. Okay. Is this the first time something like this came about? All right, so what is the history of the claim of ritual murder? Well, the first time this claim was made was in 1144, and the victim, or the so-called victim, was William of Norwich in England. But this was not the blood libel that you know about. It was the first claim of ritual murder, but not 
the idea that Jews needed blood for Passover rituals, for matzah, to bake matzah. That would come about about 100 years later. Why? Because in the early 13th century, the church adopted the idea of transubstantiation. Now, transubstantiation means that the wafer that is taken in the church ceremony is the body of Jesus, and the grape juice of the wine is the blood of Jesus. And in psychological ma- manner of projecting, those Christians who are now literally consuming the physical uh, corpse of, of Christ are, are uncomfortable with that idea. It's very distasteful. So they accuse Jews of actually being the ones who do it. That they need to take the blood of a Christian and use it in the matzah ceremony. So whereas the, in the episode of William of Norwich, it was more that ritual murder was a mocking of the passion of the Christ, subsequent uh, centuries, the ritual murder charge was the blood libel, the need to extract blood for Judaic rituals. Okay. This charge was quite popular in Western Europe all throughout the next few hundred years. But eventually, by the 1500s and onward, it, uh, and certainly by the 1600s, it was not nearly as popular in Central and Western Europe. It became more popular the further east you went. Why is this the case? So, really, three reasons. Number one, as you get into the, the, the pre-modern period, in Western and Central Europe, first of all, the Protestant Church doesn't believe in transubstantiation. So the whole theological basis for the charge kind of falls away. It becomes more of a Catholic thing than than it could ever be a Lutheran or general Protestant thing. Second reason is uh, evidence-based trials and a real judiciary replaces the old um, whim of the prosecutors of the ancient past. There's, There's more of a desire for real justice. And thirdly, once you have Protestant scholars who are knowledgeable in Hebrew, they know that the basis for the, the, the claim is entirely unfounded because the, the Jewish sources don't uh, in any way indicate that we need to have the blood of a Christian baby uh, for our ceremonies. And if you, uh, This week, hopefully, I'll write my, my Dvar Torah for those of you on my, my list. I'm going to be writing about refuting charges of ritual murder in honor of Parsha's bow, the idea of the door on the, on the, on the lintel, on the, la- on the, on the doorpost uh, for the Korban Pesach. That's the initial basis in the Bible for the claim of Pesach and blood coming together. So I'll go through all the, the, uh, the sources in the rabbinic literature that seem to indicate or in some way indicate uh, there is a connection and refute all of them. So that's why the charges moved towards Eastern Europe, where people were less interested in real justice because old autocratic regimes were still in place. The, clergy, the Christian clergy didn't know Hebrew, and people still believed in old folk tales and superstitions. They were not as advanced. So the, especially in 19-teens Russia, there were enough believers in the old Narishkeiten that probably didn't exist in Western Europe at that point in time where people had advanced uh, in, their, in terms of their sophistication. Okay, so... And no scholar, no Jewish scholar refused in any way? Oh, uh, uh, the Jewish scholars have been refuting it from time immemorial. And even popes have been refuting it. But that doesn't mean the charge can't creep back up because among the, uh, the peasant masses who don't know any better, you can fool them. Okay, so who killed him? Who killed Andrei Yushinsky? That's the question. We should not think that the entire uh, 
apparatus of the Russian state was totally anti-Semitic, viciously anti-Semitic, and wanted to convict a Jew and say that he did it for ritual purposes. It's not the case. Some elements within the hierarchy of the, of the Russian justice ministry were interested in that, and for reasons I'll explain in a minute, but others, police investigators and low-level prosecutors, wanted to get to the truth. They wanted to get to the truth. So, the first suspect was Andre's parents. Now, what happened with Andre's parents? Well, his father had gone off to the Russo-Japanese War and either died or disappeared. But there was a, a, a theory that he had left behind an estate of 500 rubles for the boy. And so there was a suspicion that the boy's mother and her, st- her boyfriend conspired to kill the boy to get the, t- the money from the estate. However, that was quickly dismissed when it was found out that it was just a rumor. There was no 500-ruble estate. So she was uh, taken off the list. The other reason why people were suspicious of her was because she didn't seem to approach the authorities when her child was missing uh, right away. She delayed a few days and didn't seem to have any emotional effect on her that her boy was missing and then dead. And that was a red flag in the eyes of the police investigators. All right, The next candidate and ultimately the person who we're all convinced actually committed the murder or authorized the committing of the murder, was Vera Chebaryak. Vera Chebaryak was a 30-year-old woman who lived not too far from the caves where the body was found and very close to the Bayless family. She was a career criminal. She was involved in the fencing of stolen goods. And the authorities were well aware of this. Her son, Zhenya, Zhenya Chebaryak, was a friend of Andre, and they were seen playing together on the morning of his disappearance. And there was testimony that Andre was in their home on the morning of his disappearance. What was the theory of, of motive uh, for Vera killing the boy? So there were two theories. One was that in the 1905 pogroms in Kiev, Vera and her gang of several other thieves had benefited greatly from the chaos, from the tumult. They were able to steal all sorts of goodies and then make a nice hefty profit. And they were looking to instigate a pogrom by committing a murder of an irrelevant kid but making it seem as though it was a ritual murder, thus arousing the passions of the masses, of the pogromists, to cause all sorts of trouble and violence, and then they could steal a few things and sell it and make a few dollars. That was one theory. The other theory was that Andre and Genya were friends, but friends sometimes get into a fight with each other. You know, these are 12-year-old boys. And Genya threatened to rat on Andre that he was playing hooky from school, and Andre threatened to rat on Genya to t- tell the police that, his, that, Gen- that Genya's mother was a, was a thief and that there were stolen items in their apartment. And the, th- the police had actually raided that apartment two days earlier and found nothing. And so the family was suspicious that maybe Andre was the one who tipped off the authorities to go raid the apartment. And that's another theory as to why they would have killed the boy. It could be that both theories are actually correct. Uh, one is not uh, exclusive of the other. But these are the theories. Well, who carried it out? Who actually committed the the murder? So Vera had a 
a gang of hoodlums, Rudzinski, Siganyevsky, and Latishev, three thugs who were uh, her leg breakers, basically. And they may have used a sharp implement to stab the kid many, many times and then done something to dump the body in the cave. All right. Vera was, was arrested on June 9th, 1911, because the initial investigator, the police detective Mishuk, was a good man, an honest man, who felt that Vera was guilty. There was evidence to, to indicate it. And there was testimony that later came out that uh, a woman, a young girl in their apartment saw the dead body the day of, uh, of the disappearance. Another one said that she tripped over the dead body as she was walking across a bedroom in their apartment a day or two later. Um, all sorts of evidence came out that they, they were the guilty party. Um, but the Russian state was not interested in Vera's prosecution. The hierarchy in the Justice Department did not like this one bit. They were interested in a ritual murder charge. Why? Did they really believe in it? Well, I'm sure there were some ranking officials who, just like the peasantry, believed in superstitions and really did think that a ritual murder was possible. But others knew full well that this was a sham and this was a fabricated charge that was going to be leveled against some Jew. They just had to find the Jew to pin it on. And why would they do it in 1911? Because the Duma, the Russian parliament, was at that time seriously contemplating abolishing the Pale of Settlement and allowing Jews to live anywhere in Russia. Now, if you are an old-fashioned Russian anti-Semitic Gentile, so the, uh, the abolition of the Pale of Settlement is uh, anathema. No, the Jews have to be restricted to the western fringes of the empire, in the old Polish and Lithuanian regions, and the Ukrainian regions, but not to uh, invade Mother Russia, the real hinterlands of Russia, where the pious Orthodox Christians can live, and the Jews have to be kept out. So the idea was that if you, if you uh, claim there was a ritual murder, and it sounds plausible enough, and they find some Jew to pin it on, the Jews collectively will be seen as hostile to good, pious Russian Orthodox people and, to, and are justifiably kept out of the Russian interior. That was the political motivation for this charge. Now, the, the police investigator, Mishuk, was taken off the case and then later arrested on some trumped-up charge just to, keep, to get him out of the way. He was too honest. The next investigator was a fellow by the name of Nikolai Krasovsky. He was like the Sherlock Holmes of Russia and was considered the best investigator they had, but also was an honest man. And he knew that the, tale was le- the, the, the trail was leading to Vera uh, Chabaryakov. And so they took him off the case too. Eventually, he continued his investigation as a private citizen with help from his colleagues on the inside in the Kiev Police Department. And he also was later charged on phony criminal charges that he once stole 50 cents from an inmate. And this was just to get him out of the picture, for which he was later acquitted. So you see that the Russian state is interested in pursuing the ritual murder angle, and anyone who interferes, even from their own ranks, is going to be thrown out of, the, uh, out of the, uh, the investigation and even incarcerated to keep them silent. Who's calling the shots? So who's calling the shots? The answer is that the Minister of Justice, Ivan Sheglitovov, was uh, a vicious anti-Semite. 
And in cooperation with the Tsar, although exactly how much cooperation with the Tsar we'll never know for sure, was arranging to have any honest uh, investigation suppressed. Okay, and would, would put into, uh, instead, lower-level prosecutors who could be trusted to do the bidding of the black hundreds, of the, the xenophobic uh, Russian anti-Semites. The, the real instigator of all the trouble for the Jews was a man by the name of Vladimir Golubov. And he was one of the leaders of the Black, uh, the black Hundreds, of the Double-Headed Eagle. He was the one who passed out flyers at the funeral saying this was a Jew who committed the murder. And he later would testify at the trial of Bayless, except that when it came to the trial and uh, Vladimir realized that he was under oath in the presence of top uh, members of the Moscow Bar, he froze and had like a seizure and couldn't say anything. And some regarded this as like a, a nice mina shemayim, that the, the, the bad guy got his comeuppance and he had a seizure on, on, the, on the witness stand. Okay. Um, so, you need a Jew to charge. Who can you charge? Mendel Bayless. Who is Mendel Bayless? Well, he is the manager of the Zaitsev Brickworks factory in a certain section of Kiev where Jews are not allowed to live. But he was allowed to live there as special dispensation because of his uh, occupation, because of his job um, managing the factory. Zaitsev was a Jew, one of these Jewish oligarchs who existed in Tsarist times. There were, very, there were a bunch of very, very wealthy uh, industrialist Jews in the late Tsarist period who made their fortunes. Um, and for the most part, those Jews abandoned the tradition and were very assimilated but absent converting, were still very much identified as Jews. So Jonah Zaitsev, the founder of the Bricksworks Company, had long since died. His son Mark Zaitsev was, was, was the owner at that point and was uh, a nominal Jew who gave Bayless a, g- a good job, w- which allowed Bayless to support his five children. But he was alone, Bayless, among thousands and thousands of Gentiles. So if you're going to pick a Jew who was nearby the cave where the body was found, your only choice is Mendel Bayless. It's a complete accident. It was him, of all people. Bayless might not have survived this whole ordeal if not for the fact that he was a beloved figure, even among the Gentiles. Everyone had a nice thing to say about him. Even the local church fathers liked him because there was a direct path between the church and the local cemetery that went right through the yard of the brickworks factory. And Bayless allowed them a rite of passage uh, through the factory yards, whereas the Christian uh, industrialist neighbor, who also had a factory that they could have gone through, did not allow passage. So here, for the Goyesha funeral, the Jews were more cooperative than the Goyim. And for that, the, the local clergy understood that Bayless was a nice man. Everyone else also uh, knew that he was a good man, a loyal employee of, of the factory, paid his workers on time, and uh, even was able to sell bricks at a discounted price for the building of a local church. So he was nice to his Gentile neighbors. Okay, that was going to serve him in good stead along the way. Bayless um, was accused by Vera, the real culprit, and a few others of having grabbed the boy Andre on the morning of March 12th, 1911, as Andre and Genia were uh, fooling around with the equipment in the factory yard, that they were playing with a clay mixer 
and Bayless came out yelling at them, oh, get off my property, you know, like a, you know, angry shouting at the 12-year-old boys, and that everybody fled, but that Bayless grabbed Andre and took him inside and then must have killed him. So no one's claiming they saw the, the, the stabbings, but they were, they were false witnesses who said they saw Bayless grab the boy. A lamplighter, a local lamplighter who was a drunk, was coerced by the police into saying that, Bayless, that he saw Bayless grab the boy. Okay. So, what was Bayless's alibi? Well, at the trial, this will come into play uh, as an important piece of evidence. What day of the week was March 12, 1911? Shabbos. So, one of the big problems is if you're going to charge ritual murder, you have to assume that the, the culprit was a religious Jew. Mendel Bayless was not a, a, an apikyrus, uh, not a, like a bad, bad Jew, but he also wasn't religious. He, wasn't, he, uh, he observed Friday night with Kiddush, but he went to work on Saturdays. He was not especially observant. Um, and so there's an illogic to the whole thing that he was going to kill a child in some Passover ceremony if he's not so from. But moreover, because he was working on Saturday, there were witnesses and a paper trail of receipts to indicate that at the moment that the kid was supposedly kidnapped, Bayless was inside the building dealing with customers. So that was his uh, pretty strong alibi. He's arrested on July 22nd, and unfortunately, his son was also arrested, his nine-year-old son. They tried to uh, take advantage of a father's uh, compassion for a son and give the impression that there was a, a, you know, a beating going on in the, in the detention facility to try to coerce a confession. But it didn't work. In fact, the boy actually wasn't maltreated, not, not to any significant extent, and was released a day or two later. But Mendel was incarcerated and was waiting an indictment. In Russia at the time, before you were officially indicted, you weren't allowed legal representation. And you also weren't allowed contact with your family. And so from July of 1911 until sometime in January of 1912, he had no contact with the outside world. Um, he was treated very, very badly. He w- his body was blistered and bloodied. Um, but the, the police did something very devious. They wanted him to admit some degree of guilt. By putting him in solitary confinement, a person could go nuts. A person goes mad, but they're alone. So he requested a cellmate. Now, that's a little bit of a risk, because what happens if the cellmate is an axe murderer? You don't want to all of a sudden be with a 300-pound guy who's going to destroy you. So he was willing to take that chance for his own sanity. But they, they had a habit, the police, of putting in uh, spies into his cell who were trying to engage him in conversation that could be used against him in the court of law. Moreover, one of them was a career thief, uh, offered to facilitate the transfer of letters from Mendel to his wife, which was illegal. He was supposed to have no contact with the family, and that was held against him later at trial, that he was violating the orders of the prison system. Okay. In uh, January of 1912... The first indictment of Bayless was issued, and it was a simple murder charge without ritual murder attached to it. Uh, this was done by uh, the investigating magistrate, Fenenko, who himself realized that 
Bayless was innocent and only did it because he was he was being coerced by the Ministry of Justice, and it, it was not a pleasant time for any of the parties involved because those who who knew the truth didn't really want to. Um, keep Bayless in jail, or for that matter, put him to trial, but they had no choice because higher powers were pulling the strings. But the higher powers were, were totally dissatisfied because the evidence against Bayless for a basic murder charge was thoroughly lacking, and it was pretty clear that Vera and her goons had done the murder. Vera had been arrested in June and spent five weeks in prison before she was released. Later on, the investigation came back to her and to her three thugs, and one of them, uh, Latishev, was concerned that maybe he would be put under arrest. And so from uh, the police headquarters, which he was in a fourth-story office building, he asked to get a cup of water by, from a, uh, a, a Poland Spring thing by the window, and he jumped out the window and died. So he, I'm not sure if he was trying to escape or commit suicide, but he died instantly from a fourth-story fall. So there's stuff going on outside of the prison to other potential suspects, but the authorities want Bayless convicted. So the, the uh, indictment was overturned. It was revoked. And now Bayless is still in jail with no indictment. So he's waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and being mistreated on a regular basis by the prison authorities. Finally, in early 1913, a second indictment is handed down. And this time, it was murder, but also that it was a ritual murder. So the Zara and, and, and his henchmen get what they want. There will eventually be a trial. But the trial is delayed. And Bayless is, um, is told by the prison authorities, if you request on behalf of your lawyers a full uh, file of the investigation, it will delay the trial by three months which may have been a lie, but Bayless was desperate to get to the trial already to prove his innocence. He thought that if he finally had his day in court, he would win. He was confident he would win. And the authorities were interested in torturing him even further. So they were, no, they were in no rush to get to the trial. They were happy to see him you know, wallow in his own misery. Yeah, you had a question. Is there any reaction from the organized Jewish the, the organized Jewish world didn't know anything until the indictment came down. So the, for the first six months that he was in jail, really it was a blackout period. All throughout 1912, between the first and second indictments, Jews from around the world were rallying to his cause, and uh, Gentiles in Russia were also rallying to his cause, including top-flight lawyers, the best lawyers in all of Russia, Gentile lawyers, including one Jew, and also one Jewish lawyer, Oskar Grusenberg, who would be the lead counsel, uh, offered pro bono uh, representation. And so people are working on his behalf to try to secure his release, whether through innocence at trial or undoing of the indictment and just having him be sent free. But all those efforts had proved uh, not to be all that relevant. All right. The trial begins on September 25th, 1913 and extends all the way until October 28, 1913. So it's a 34-day trial. It's a jury trial, and the key point point is, who are the members of the jury? So, of course, all 12 are Christians, but not just are they Christians. This was a city, Kiev. It's a pretty big city. There's an urban intelligentsia. There are educated people who live in cities. Yet, 10 out of the 12 jurors had no secondary education. 
and seven out of the twelve jurors were peasants, despite the fact that it's in a city. Seven were peasants. All, and, and also seven were members of the Black Hundreds, which was an own anti-Semitic organization. So the deck was stacked for him to be convicted. The judge, Fyodora Boldarev, was also an anti-Semite, and not exactly an impartial uh, presence on the bench. The prosecutor was a man by the name of Vipper, who was, work, who was a, an underling of the justice minister, also himself an anti-Semite. And the assistant prosecutor was a man by the name of Chaplinsky, who was the worst of them all. Chaplinsky was the one who, who manipulated witnesses to lie and to, to fabricate evidence uh, that really wasn't all that impressive, but was something with which to go to trial. Now, there were 130 witnesses for the prosecution and 30-some-odd witnesses for the defense. They were all w- sworn in the first day of the trial. The, the whole day was just 200 people putting their hands on a Bible and saying, I swear. Um, as the trial continued, the prosecution had a real problem. Over the span of two years, they had periodically um, changed their approach to what they thought happened. Now, always thinking that Bayless was guilty and that a Jew had committed a ritual murder, but the, the angles, the theories of the case evolved over time, and the manipulated evidence didn't always uh, mesh with, 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 with each other. So there was contradictory testimony emanating from the prosecution. And the defense was able to use that to their advantage, saying that the prosecution is a pack full of lies and doesn't know what it's talking about. Um, Some of the witnesses refused to to appear in court, meaning these were prosecution witnesses who had at some point offered some kind of false uh, statement to the police and didn't want to, under oath uh, in a courtroom, repeat that uh, lie. Others were willing to go to court and, and get on the witness stand and testify and say falsehoods, but sometimes even admit that, under oath, we were coerced to say these things in, the, in, in, the, in open court. And other times, refuse to repeat the lie and just say nothing and say, I don't know. Whereas they had previously offered some kind of uh, substantive evidence, they said under oath, I don't know. I know nothing. There were four intellectuals who testified. Two on behalf of the defense to try to disprove the truths of blood libels, generally speaking, not just the Bayless blood libel, but in general the Jews don't use blood for, of Christians for ritual purposes. And there were two on the other side, on the prosecution side, who tried to testify that ritual murder does happen. So one of them was actually a, a psychiatrist who said that Bayless was a, was a religious fanatic and that uh, the Jews have this uh, class of religious fanatics among them who are crazy and, and they kill people and they use their blood. And now he had no basis for this. He was no expert in anything of the sort, but he was a doc, quote-unquote doctor, so that impressed the, the peasants in the jury box. The other was a, a, a Catholic priest named Father Justin Pranitis who was famous for being a charlatan, who wrote the Talmud Unmasked in 1892, which was like in the, in the episode of Jacob Frank, where we discussed how there were various attempts to prove from the Talmud that the blood libel is true, like the Tzach Adash B'Achav, Dam Tzrichim Kulanu, we all need the blood of Jesus, like, uh, like our ancestors did in Jerusalem. So, Pranitis quoted all the anti-Gentile statements of the Talmud, assembled it in a book, and put it out as a Talmud unmasked, and he was uh, the expert witness at the Bayless case. When he was cross-examined, he, w- he turned out to be a f- complete fraud. 
he didn't even read Hebrew. He was asked, well, you, you're quoting from Tractate Chulun. What is the meaning of the word Chulun? And he didn't know. And he was quoting from Tractate Yevamot. What is the meaning of the word Yevamot? And he didn't know. And so the, the uh, prosecution was uh, objected to the judge, saying that the defense attorneys are not allowed to, to give a religious test, an examination of the witness. The witness is here as an expert witness. Let him say what he knows. We can't just test his knowledge under, you know, while he's sitting in the box. To which the, the defense w- uh, attorney said, we're not offering him a religious test. We're just asking for an explanation of his own words, which if he cannot explain, then you must disregard this testimony. And so he was embarrassed. Why do they have to use a Catholic priest if this is Russia? It's an Orthodox country. Answer is so. Ukraine is uniate, which is uh, you know neither here nor there. It's a, it's some of it is Catholic, some of it is is Russian Orthodox, and some of it is uniate, which is an in between denomination. So, but mo- most of Kiev was Russian Orthodox, not Catholic, and the reason they couldn't get a Russian Orthodox was because the Russian Orthodox clergy, for the most part, didn't believe in the veracity of the blood libel. So you couldn't find anyone who was willing to, to get up there and say that Jews kill, pe- kill Christian children for blood. Okay. Right, so he, be, because, he, because Mendel uh, Bayless was a likable guy, you weren't going to find a local Christian clergyman to say vicious things about him. Okay, now, when it came to uh, trying to prove that Mendel Bayless really was this you know, religious Jew who needed blood of, of, of Christians, they had to come up with some theory behind it. And so the theory was that Jonah Zaitsev, the founder of the Brickworks, Brick, Brickworks factory, and the father of the, the, the current owner, Mark Zaitsev, had real estate holdings, agricultural holdings, <laughs> including a plot where he would uh, grow wheat for shmura matzah. And that Bayless, in years gone by, had been the supervisor of the, the patch of land that was reserved for the wheat for the shmura matzah. Now, by 1911, he no longer was doing that, but in years gone by, he had been uh, assigned that task. Why? Of all Jews, after all, Mendel's not all that religious, the answer is he was a manager of the factory, he was a a, a loyal uh, employee, so this was his responsibility. They asked Bayless, in, in the investigation, and they tried to use this at trial, are you a chassid or a misnagid? And he said, I'm just a Jew. I don't know much about you know, the different factions within Judaism. Now, that wasn't a lie. Bayless was neither a chassid nor a misnagid. He was simply an, uh, not a very religious Jew. Um, the other factor was he had a business relationship with someone whose last name was Schneerson. And so they accused him of being a Chabad chassid and that he had associations with the, with the Friedeke Rebbe, with the previous Rebbe. Um, also, there was an accusation that on the day of the disappearance of Andrei Yashinsky, um, two long-bearded and long caftan wearing Jews were seen with Mendel in his apartment. In fact, the two Jews in question were totally clean-shaven and utterly assimilated Jews who were there on business. So there were these connections that if you wanted to extend them and fabricate them you could say, well, he was involved with matzah he was involved with the chassidim and he was with, with involved with the tzaddikim they used the word tzaddikim, that, that Bayless was a tzaddik in the sense of like a Hasidic rebbe tzaddik type but anyone who knew any better realized this was a, a, a yarn that was being spun, it had no, no basis in fact 
yeah, in the previous generation, his family had been observant, but then again, so were all Russian Jews in the previous generation. By 1911, a lot of Russian Jews were not, were not observant anymore. But in the, I don't know. I don't know. So, what happens at verdict? The verdict is 7 to 5 that Andrei Yushinsky was killed in a manner resembling ritual murder. 7 to 5 verdict, it was a ritual murder. Now, at that point... But they say it was him. Okay, so at that point, Mendel thinks that his goose is cooked, that it's over, he's going to be executed on the spot. But intentionally, the prosecution divided up the charge into two parts, that just in case they couldn't um, convict Mendel himself, they could at least get some sort of uh, decision in a court of law that it was a ritual murder. So that the prosecution got, and the Tsar and the Ministry of Justice was very happy. But, the foreman continues to read from the jury, that by a vote of 6 to 6, Mendel Bayliss is not guilty. Now, 6 to 6, the tie goes to the runner. The tie goes to the defendant. In the, in the Russian system, it didn't have to be a unanimous, unanimous jury verdict. A simple majority wins, but a tie is in favor of the defendant with, without the possibility of double jeopardy. There was not, not going to be another trial. So as soon as it's 6-6, six to six, Mendel goes free. Mendel goes free. What, what happened? There really would have been a 7-5 to five verdict on both counts. But at the last minute, before the, the, the jury foreman was going to tell the judge that they reached a decision, one of the seven who voted uh, to so-called convict on the first charge said, you know, I believe in God and I can't have this on my soul, not guilty. And so seven to five went to six to six. So one man changed everything, changed the fate. Okay, what happens next? Bayless is free to go. But the judge tells him, if I were you, I wouldn't go home. Why? Because there could be a pogrom. There was going to be a pogrom if he was guilty. But even with him not guilty, that just makes the, the pogromists even more mad that they didn't get their way. So the judge says, do yourself a favor, spend the night in jail. Because at least in jail we can protect you. Now Mendel thought to himself, this could be a trick. Maybe they'll kill me in the jail. Maybe this is the government's plot to have an excuse to, you know, to poison me or whatever. Uh, so he doesn't accept any food or drink. But he agrees that, all right, maybe it's a better idea for him to have protection of the, of the, uh, of the police and the, uh, the correction system, at least for one night. Okay, so in his memoirs, he writes that much to his shock, he was treated like a royalty by the same people who were spitting on him and punching him just a day or two earlier, and who for, for two years had been, had been his oppressors. That now he was a celebrity, and they were all treating him very nicely. So he got to the jail... And the warden says, what are you doing here? Go home. And so he went home. And that was it. Um, people came from all over Russia, Jews and Gentile alike, to congratulate him on his exoneration. And he was pleasantly surprised that so many Russians had done, done so much for him, had risked their own lives and careers for his cause that some of the police investigators who had gone to jail on his behalf and members of the clergy, all walks of life had been protesting his innocence and he didn't really know anything about it because he was stuck in prison the whole time. So he was very, very grateful. 
And of course, the Jews want, all the Jews thought he was a VIP and they wanted to go see him and wish him Yashikoach and Mazel Tov. And he was shaking hands all night long and for the next few days. But he also realized that the Black Hundreds are out to get him. And if he stayed in Kiev or stayed in, in Tsarist Russia, he probably would be a dead man eventually. So he had to leave. By December, he has his passport all ready. The family is all ready to go. They're going to leave. But where are they going to go? So, Bayless doesn't know what to do with himself. He, he, December 1914, right? 1913. 1913. August 1st, 1914. So, where is he going to go? A, a, a three-man committee in Kiev was going to decide his fate. He placed his fate in the hands of who he, he trusted were wise Jews to give him a, a parnasa and to tell him where to go. He sort of like abdicated any, any and all responsibility for his life at this point. He, he, he trusted others to tell him what to do. Maybe that's the result of having been in jail for a while. Sometimes you can't acclimate yourself to freedom again. Okay. There were many offers for him to do a, a speaker circuit, you know, capitalize on his fame, celebrity appearances. He refused. He did not want to commercialize his uh, Jewish heroism. That he had all throughout, refused to confess. He had maintained his innocence and he understood that he was the scapegoat for Klal Yisrael. And he took that responsibility very seriously. But he wasn't going to capitalize it and make a lot of money. But he still needs to support his family and he needs to be safe. So, some say go to America. Others say go to Israel. He decides he's going to go to Israel. Why Israel? Because the offer to go to Germany, to go to France, to go to, uh, to, go to America... He didn't speak German, he didn't speak French, he didn't speak English. He spoke Yiddish and Russian. Okay? So he figures he'll go to Eretz Yisrael. He'll, if he was, if he was a, a potential martyr for the Jewish cause, let him live out his, his waning years in the Holy Land with his family. So he goes across the border with nobody paying attention. A secret, they don't tell anyone he's leaving because they're afraid that the Black Hundreds will meet him at the, at the, at the border and shoot him. And he steals across the border, goes to Vienna, then goes to Trieste, and then gets on a boat, goes to, to Alexandria, then to, to Jaffa, to, to Tel Aviv. With his, With his family, yeah. When he gets to Israel, so the question is, where does he live now? There are two choices, Yerushalayim or Tel Aviv. And the Yerushalayim, the Yerushalmi say, how could you not go to Yerushalayim? You know, it's the, it's the center of Judaism. How could you? So he goes to the Kotel, and he's told that at the Kotel, people daven for him for two years straight. And he's, over, he's like overwhelmed by the idea that this place where, where for, for 2,000 years was, the, was the, uh, the, the symbol of the Galut, the destruction of the temple, that he was the last korban of the Galut, and that they were davening for him at this place. It was very meaningful to him. But he decided to live in Tel Aviv. And on his first Shabbos in Tel Aviv, the chief rabbi, Rav Cook, who was at that point the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, Yafo. In Tel Aviv. There, uh, there wasn't much. It was founded in 1909, but there's not there, not much. So, uh, Rav Cook gives a two-hour drasha in honor of Bayless on his first Shabbos there. They give him an aliyah. They make a kiddush in his honor. A two-hour drasha. I should have sent him through Yeah. <laughs> All right. But now there's a problem. He needs money. He needs money, and. All sorts of promises were made to him by the various gavirim of the Jewish diaspora that they would give him support 
They, 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 they would take care of him. I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. Nothing ever materialized. He had 3,000 rubles that he earned by giving a, a, a newspaper interview. So it was the equivalent of about $6,000. But even that was deposited in his behalf in the, in the Anglo-Palestine uh, uh, Bank in Jaffa. And when there was a change of administration, the German Jew who was running it wouldn't give him the money. So here, he's being cheated out of his remuneration, and all sorts of promises to take care of him are being unfulfilled. Um, then the war breaks out, and the war is a big problem. World War I in Eretz Israel was bad for the Yishuv, because most members of the Yishuv held what passport? Russian. Russian. And who's at war with Russia? Russia. The Ottoman Empire. So it's an excuse to expel them. Uh, uh, as we learned last week with Eliezer ben Yehuda, he had these problems. So Bayliss was an Ottoman subject at that point. Quite understandably, he gave up his Russian passport. Uh, he had no interest in being a Russian citizen anymore. He got there Eretz Israel, he became a Turkish subject. But still, life wasn't pleasant in Eretz Israel. People were being uh, forced from their homes. And his son, Pinchas, was conscripted into the Turkish army, where he was n- not treated very well, and he deserted. And as a deserter, he was subject to possibly being executed. Mendel came across his son somewhere in the Negev. Not, well, not, not, it's unclear exactly where, but they, they chanced upon each other, and they were both on the run from the Turks. They would have been killed if not for the fact that his son had typhus. And the doctor put a note on the door of the, the, the building they were staying in, quarantine, nobody come in. So they weren't found because the son had typhus. And eventually, Pinchas uh, joins the, the Jewish Legion. He goes off and becomes a, a, a member of the Jewish Legion, a soldier, he's a fighter, he's a good Zionist. Makes, and Pinchas really had a problem of being in the shadow of his father. Here, Mendel had been this hero of Am Yisrael, the man who was accused of, of, of killing a Christian, the blood libel, and he survived all the tortures. Mendel was a Jewish hero. But the son doesn't want to live in the father's shadow. He also wanted to be a Jewish hero, so he fought for the Jewish legion. All right. But life would not work out well for Pinchas. Now, in 1919, um, after the war was over, again, Mendel is looking for support. He doesn't have a means to earn a living, and all the promises of the diaspora leadership were falling flat. So, what does he do? What does he do? He tries to get a hold of Rothschild. Rothschild doesn't, is not interested in him. Nothing works. In 1920, they decide, you know what? We're going to move to America. We're going to move to America. What's going to happen in America? Well, Golden Medina, maybe he'll have uh, commercial opportunities. So, he has letters of introduction. At this point, in 1920, Mendel would be 46. And... He has letters of introduction to prominent American Jews like Judge Julian Mack and certain others, and he goes into the printing business. But his, his partner rips him off. Then he goes into another printing business, and then the, the guy goes bankrupt. Then he goes into being an insurance salesman. Doesn't really, no mazel, no mazel whatsoever. And also, his celebrity is running thin. 
1913 and 1914, everybody wants to shake hands with Mendel Bayless. Everyone's offering him money, or theoretically offering him money. And uh, he has you know, reception after reception where thousands of people greet him and uh, big feasts in his honor, big kiddush in his honor. By 1920s, he's already a has-been. It's a horrible thing to say. She came to New York. He lived first Lower East Side, then he lived in the Bronx, in the Hunts Point section. And uh, he... Um, so he ekes out a bare living. In 1925, he writes his memoirs, the, uh, my, uh, my Life of Suffering, in Yiddish. It was serialized in a newspaper, one of the Yiddish uh, daily newspapers. Then in 1926, it came out in, uh, in English. And it was sold um, for $3 a copy. And that was a way for Bayless to recover some money. And there was a listing of people who, who, who promised to buy copies of the book. There was like a, a donations page in the back of the book. that The following people you know, made contributions to, the, to, to Bayless for the for publication of this book. So it was self-published. It, w- it was, yes. I mean, I mean, he had someone publish it for him, but it, you know. it, was no, it was no real commercial publishing that was doing this. Okay, in 1931, another version came out. Uh, it, uh, it was reprinted and sold a bunch of copies. And Bayless is already at this point getting on in years, and he's in his late 50s, but he's not, not in good health. Rav Cook wrote a letter that they published in the 1931 edition of the book indicating that Menachem Mendel Bayless is uh, a hero of Am Yisrael. So if Rav Cook says you're a hero of Am Yisrael, it, means it must be you're something. And it was the, the whole purpose of that letter was to generate more book sales to support Mendel. But he died in poverty. Uh, in 1934. Now, the, the, what I mentioned about the son, the son was very upset. He didn't go to America. He went in the Jewish Legion, and when the Jewish Legion was disbanded in 1920, he went to work in the Galil, uh, clearing away rocks for kibbutzim. Really hard manual labor. And then he would read in the, in the Yiddish papers that were mailed back from America to Israel about how his father was desperate for money and was doing various you know, gigs and you know, embarrassing things to have to earn a living. And it bothered him so terribly that what did he do? He committed suicide. So Pinchas Bayless shot himself. Now, in the memoir, of ba- uh, uh, which was published not that long ago, uh, Blood Libel, The Life and Memory of, Men- of Mendel Bayless, there's a footnote that says that Mendel believed his son committed suicide because of all the tsarist that was happening to Mendel, because of the embarrassing aspect of his poverty and having to do all sorts of things to earn a living. However, in the footnote it says he may have shot himself because he fell in love with a girl and it, it didn't work out, and so it was a you know, lover's quarrel and he shot himself. So it's unclear, but that really hurt Mendel because... He loved his son very much. The son had, had been incarcerated with him in the first few days when they were in jail, and it, it devastated him. When Mendel died in 1934, the funeral attracted over 4,000 people and was held at the Eldridge Street Synagogue because it was felt that even though uh, in life they didn't treat him so good, at least in death let him have a fond farewell. Uh, now why, why did he not get the money that was promised to him? So some of the promises were never really sincere. But why couldn't someone give him a job, like at least a decent-paying job in a bank? There were, there were offers that he should work in a bank as a, as, a, as a teller, as a security guard, as something. And the answer is 
that everyone who considered giving him a job thought that it would be beneath the dignity of Mendel Bayless to have a low, like, menial job. Therefore, how could I offer it to him? Or, if I hire Mendel Bayless, people will say he only got a job because he was Mendel Bayless. And that would be embarrassing to him. So for all these, like, considerations of, of pride, in the end, everyone who might have meant well just hurt him, and that they, they, they deprived him of the possibility of earning a, de- a decent wage. And so, the last 20 years of his life were not very pleasant. Um, he always said that he regretted leaving Eretz Yisrael for America. He had been told in 1913, you're crazy for going to Palestine over New York. That New York is a wonderful place, it's a, you know, it's like a cosmopolitan place like uh, Kiev was, even better, and Palestine is a backward uh, wasteland. Why would you want to go to Palestine? But he, in his ideological zeal, decided, I'm going to go to Eretz Yisrael. Having gone there, he really liked it. He really fell in love with Eretz Yisrael. He wanted to be there. And it was only because of dire circumstances uh, uh, precipitated by the war and then uh, some financial misdeeds that were done to him that he had to leave. He had to go somewhere else. But he never liked America. He really didn't. He he would have preferred to go back to Eretz Yisrael if he could, but it never happened. Okay, yeah. Yes, he's buried in Queens. Um, And I'll read to you what's on his tombstone. He is buried in um, Mount Carmel. In um, Carmel Cemetery, yeah. That's in Cypress Hill, isn't it? Yeah. So his, his tombstone says the following. Pay attention to this grave. Here lies a holy person, a chosen man. The people of Kiev made him a victim, and upon all Israel spread the travail. Falsely accused him and his community of taking the blood of a Christian child as demanded by him and his faith for the festival of Passover. They bound him in chains and lowered him into a pit. Many years he did not see the light of day. On behalf of all Israel he was harshly tortured. Pay tribute to this pure and guiltless soul who dwells in the shadow of the Lord in the heights of heaven. Until those who slumber shall awaken life. Menachem Mendel ben Tuvia Bayless died on 24 Tammuz 5694. May his memory be for an eternal blessing. May he still be bound in the bond of eternal life. So that was a very nice epitaph put on his tombstone. Um, I don't know who paid for it because he couldn't afford it. Yeah. Uh, I remember reading that uh, during the Bayless trial there was a world outcry. Yes. And they didn't explain it. Was there a world outcry? Yes. How did it manifest itself? Okay, so the world outcry included um, public intellectuals in Russia, Gentiles, uh, denouncing the Tsarist regime and the, pro- and the, the prosecution and persecution of Bayless also public intellectuals all over Europe, Western, Central and Western Europe, and even in America. Plus, of course, the Jewish community uh, was up in arms, and the various uh, alphabet soup organizations, like American organizations, um, the American Jewish Committee, which was founded in 1906, was, on his, was supporting Bayless's efforts. The Alliance Israeli Universelle was supporting Bayless. All the, um, in the developed countries, in the Western countries, where they had robust Jewish communities and representative organizations, they put forward statements and, and, and money to support Bayless's defense. Yeah? Did that affect his defense? Is that what helped? Didn't matter. Ultimately, what mattered was that the, 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 the case against him was so weak and that his pro bono Russian Gentile lawyers were that good, there was no chance that a reasonable jury would have convicted. Now, of course, it wasn't a reasonable jury. But even with a not-so-reasonable jury, they were unable to convict. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, why was the conviction important to the Tsarist government? 
wouldn't the event be enough to start a program? And I want to contrast this to yeah. Leo Frank. Right. At the exact same time. Okay, so so the, in the, the Leo Frank case and the Bayless case happening exactly at the same time, 1913, and the irony of it is, of course, that in America, so-called, you know, safe America, the guy got lynched. Before and in trial. Russia, b- before trial, and in Russia, the guy went to trial, was exonerated, and no one died. So how do you explain that? <laughs> Some, <laughs> so, sometimes... It's not a Okay, okay, so, so actually, in this book, Blood Libel in Late Imperial Russia, by Professor Weinberg, Robert Weinberg, he goes through a whole bunch of documents, including newspaper um, uh, articles from conservative uh, pro-monarchy newspapers, Black Hundred newspapers, appealing for restraint. So I'll, I'll read you uh, just a little snippet of it. Um, even though most conservative newspapers believe that Bayless was guilty, some acted responsibly by appealing to its readers to behave in a lawful manner and not engage in anti-Jewish violence. So I have the, here it says, Judum knows very well that our victory will bring about incalculable damage and loss for the Jewish community in Russia and abroad. It would be very strange if the community did not take all measures and possibilities to disrupt this victory. We already remarked on and clarified such attempts in Kiev that ended in failure thanks to the restraint and composure of the very patient Russian people. It is a foreboding and moral victory of orthodoxy over Satanism, Christianity over the Talmud, and the Russian people over the so-called oppressed people. The pogrom, as we have already warned our readers and like-minded people, presents the greatest evil for Russia and the Russian people, and we, standing firmly on the ground of strictest law and order, carry the word of, of our adored autocracy, caution the Russian people to avoid even the smallest illegal action or display of illegitimate action. So in other words... I don't think the peasants read the Russian version of the New York Times. It wasn't the Russian version of the New York Times. It was like more like the Daily News. So the point, the point is that since, since the... Uh, since the anti-Semites believed that there was a strong case to convict Bayless, in large measure because they believed in the superstitions of the blood libel, for real believed it, not like it was a fake, they thought that a guilty verdict would prove that the Talmud and Judaism are all evil and the devil. And so a, a pogrom instigated too soon would just show that they were a bunch of Vildechayas. So to preserve their own good name, at least that newspaper wanted there to be law and order until the trial with the assumption of a guilty verdict, and then, uh, who knows what will happen then, because it's left unstated, but at least until the guilty verdict, behave ourselves. No. So after he was exonerated, which was a shock to to the system... All the people who thought that it was a farce came to, to congratulate Bayless and say this is a wonderful day for Russia, that we've moved past the Dark Ages, and now we, we, see, we see that Russia is an enlightened country like all the other European countries. And the people who were hoping for a guilty verdict were left to cry, you know, bitter tears. Did it have any effect on the uh, blood libel? It was the last significant blood libel in Europe. I mean, there was another one in Messina, New York in 1928. Uh, incident at Messina, there's a movie about it, but... Um, it's still it's still around, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Food initiative to be religious, there shouldn't be any blood in the business. Those are Jewish uh-huh. chickens. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's a funny joke, so, but I, all right, now, okay, so in, in, um, in contrast to that, the Mishnah says 
that dam mehalche shtayim, the blood of those that walk on two feet, um, does not result in punishment for uh, if you consume that blood. You're not uh, in violation of, a, of the biblical command of lotochal kol dam. Now, so the anti-Semites looked at that Mishnah, Bikurim chapter two, Mishnah seven, and said, "Aha! Jews are allowed to have human blood. They can't eat animal blood, but they can have human blood." So. In fact, what is the halacha? That under rabbinic law, mishum marit ayin, you're not allowed to consume any food stuff that has a stain of, of human blood on it, but you are allowed to lick your bloody gums. <laughs> because it's, it hasn't gone out of your body, so it, it hasn't departed, and thus it's not uh, problematic even rabbinically. But, that, but those passages in the Mishnah and Gemara are cited by Pranitis and by the Frankists earlier uh, to say, no, no, the blood libel has, is true. And, 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 and as for the biblical injunction against eating blood, it didn't apply to humans. Yeah. I think one, maybe one of the reasons why there wasn't a pogrom was in the uh, early 1900s, yeah, the Kishinev pogroms, where it was the headlines of the New York Times and there was worldwide condemnation. So, it, yes, in 1903 at Kishinev, and then 1905 elsewhere, there were massive pogroms. It killed a significant number of people, and it was a tremendous outcry in the Western world that this is a horrible thing. And, yeah, the, the, the Russian regime was not interested in anarchy. The government didn't want a pogrom. The xenophobes outside the government would have liked to have had a really bloody pogrom. The government simply wanted just a guilty verdict. The czar was personally pretty quiet, letting his underlings do the dirty work. But... Oh, sure. In fabricating evidence. No, his... His people, yes. His people. So, now, w- w- what happened to some of these bad, a- these bad characters um, I- I- at the end of the day? And so, Bayless outlived almost all of them. So, that's the, 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 good, the, the good thing, the happy part of the story. So, I'll just read to you what, what happened to some of these people. What they say is so wasn't that you're right, fine. Uh, the, so, the, the Minister of Justice, Sheklovitov, was executed by the Bolsheviks in 1917. Vipper, the chief prosecutor, uh, found employment with the communists, but in 1919 the Bolsheviks arrested him and he died in prison later that year. Uh, Golobov, who was the one who at the funeral was passing out anti-Jewish leaflets and was instigating the whole blood, uh, you know, ritual murder aspect of the thing, died in battle in World War I. Father Pranitis died in 1917. And as for Vera Chiberikov, who actually was the one who committed the murder, she was shot by the, uh, by the communists in 1918. Now, why was she uh, uh, killed? I won't use the word assassinated because she's not important enough to merit the word assassination, but why was she killed? Because she cooperated with the czarist regime and she was a believer in you know, Romanov autocracy. So anyone who was known in famous episodes of having collaborated with the Romanovs was, in the eyes of the incoming communists, an enemy. So they shot her. So ultimately, everybody except for Kaplinsky, the assistant prosecutor, all the bad guys in this case died before Mendel Bayless. And on that note, we'll stop.